What an awesome, awesome God we serve. Amen. Before we begin and jump into God's word here, I've got a couple of things that I want to tell you about. Um, first of all, you might have noticed a guy sitting with me on the front row up here uh, the last couple of weeks. Zach, would you stand up and wave at people real quick? Folks, this is Zach Busby, and uh, he has come on this semester as an intern um, here, here in our church. He is a um, almost graduate of Piedmont International University, and uh, that he graduates in May, and he is interning with us this, this uh, semester. Every single week during the school year, we have a group of folks from our church who go and serve in Diggs Latham Elementary School, which is right down the street here. In the Good News Club, and this is an after-school program in which, really, honestly, complete freedom is given to share the gospel with, um, with, these, with these kids. And this past Thursday, um, Jeff Failing was very excited to text me and tell us that there was a fourth-grade girl that came to faith in Christ this past Thursday. That's awesome, isn't it? Let's celebrate that together. <clears throat> Folks, that is exactly why we are here. Right? For, for the lost to come and find life in Jesus. That's the finding life in Jesus part of our mission statement. Pursuing is what we now do further. We continue to pursue life in Jesus from this point on. Hey, take your Bibles and turn to, uh, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We come to a portion in our study today, and as we're working through, honestly, overarching picture of God's Word, big picture, what God has done, what He is doing, what He will do in the future. All of 2019, we're in this study entitled, Our Story, His Story. So we're looking at his story, but then we also look at how our story fits into God's story. Today we come to a part that is honestly one of the most heartbreaking stories in all of the Word of God, if not the most heartbreaking story. We look at how sin entered into the world to begin with. Okay, so Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be there here in just a moment. Before we do so, I want to tell you about... A book review that I read not long ago. This book review was written by Dr. Russell Moore. He is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and he wrote a book review on a book that was entitled Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Okay, that's the book that he wrote a book review on, and here's some excerpts to what Russell Moore had to say. Imagine if you had a truth serum that would force you to disclose who you really are and what you really think, fear, and value. In some ways, you already do. The digital search engine on, our, on your phones and devices. The book, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are, makes the claim that mind resources on what people search for online is more reliable for research than what they tell people in surveys. This is because, the book asserts, people don't like to admit certain things about themselves or to themselves, but they'll tell Google. Google searches tell us more than surveys or social media posts, the book points out, because all the factors are there to make people honest. No one is there in front of you. You're alone. You're seeking out the answers to the questions you, already, you, you really have. You're seeking out the answers to the questions you really have. The human heart often thinks it can cover its paths before God, saying, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive, and he's quoting Psalm 94, 7 there. The truth is, we can't even hide from Google. How can we hide from God? Google knows who we are, 
sometimes better than we know ourselves. But Google doesn't love us. Our lives are lived before the face of God, a face seen in that of Jesus Christ. His deep inside knowledge of their lives, both good and bad, respectively, of Nathaniel and the woman at the well startled them both. He quotes John 1 and John 4 there. The good news is that in both cases and in many more, Jesus knew all these things ahead of time and sought them and us out anyway. Folks, in that is the premise of everything that we're going to talk about today. God looks on us as individuals. He sees our sin, both past, present, and what we're going to do in the future, and he chooses to love us anyway. And what we're going to find today is that God doesn't tolerate sin. He doesn't put up with sin in any way, shape, or form, but he offers forgiveness for it when we ask him to. Okay, so you're in Genesis chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse 7, and I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 2, starting reading in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pashan. It is the, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold, that is there, uh, the gold of that land is good. Nelium, excuse me, Delium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gehan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. All right, let's pause there and let's go to God, to God right now and just ask that he bless our time together. So let's pray. Our Father, in these moments, may you and your word be magnified. May you be lifted high. Father, for those of us that came into this room today, um, all of us, actually, all of us need to hear from you. We need to hear what your word has to say, what it means, and then what we're to do with it. So, Father, in these moments, may our thoughts and our attentions be fixed solely on you. Father, help us not to deviate from you. And, Lord, help us to know, without a doubt, the ways in which you are convicting us. And Father, I pray that at the end of today, we leave changed in one way or another closer to you than when we came in. Our Father, we love you, but we only love you because you first loved us. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. And it's in his holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the first thing I want for us to talk about this morning based off of this passage is the idea of paradise with a choice. Paradise with a choice. Now, at several places all throughout the Bible, the Garden of Eden is described as the Garden of God. In the book of Ezekiel, um, chapter 31, Isaiah chapter 51, both of those authors respectively um, describe the Garden of Eden as the Garden of God. Now, you can imagine that any garden that belongs to God 
is, um, that is uncorrupted by sin is absolutely perfect, right? Anything that's designed by God belongs to God that is uncorrupted by sin is absolutely perfect. Um, now, I can imagine a garden such as this in abundance of trees, um, all kinds of trees. I can imagine there's animals walking around all over the place. You know, you try walking down the path and there's a lion that just kind of crosses right in front of you. Um, I, I, I think about there's, there's squirrels, there's all kinds of stuff all over the place. There's birds that are singing, there's, there's water that's flowing in this nice little spring and this waterfall that comes down. Um, it's kind of like the porridge in the story of Goldilocks, right? You remember? Temperature not too hot, not too cold, just right. The temperature of the Garden of Eden, maybe. Um, so as I continue imagining the Garden of Eden, I, um, I, I've in the past kind of imagined it almost like an aviary. It, it was, how do you say that? Um, aviary, there we go, at the zoo, right? An aviary, aviary is when you walk into this huge dome type building and there's birds flying around all over the place. There's this greenery that's there. It's kind of, it's kind of moist. There's, there's, uh, it's, 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 it's not too hot, not too cold, right? But you walk into this thing and it's almost like I imagine the Garden of Eden to be something similar to that, except that the Garden of Eden is much, much bigger. In fact, I would imagine the Garden of Eden is so large that it probably takes days to walk through it. Now, from the time we were in Sunday school, as little kids, and we started hearing about the Garden of Eden, we started formulating some thoughts and some imagination about what this might have looked like, right? Am I the only one that's done that? No? Okay, good, good. But we start thinking about what would the Garden of Eden look like? And more than likely, at some point, we've associated the word paradise with the Garden of Eden. I think it's a perfect word to put, put in that place. And here's a couple of reasons. One is the absence of sin there in the Garden of Eden. There is no sin whatsoever. Nothing is tainted by sin. We're going to see here in just a couple of moments that sin is far-reaching in its effect on man and its effect on creation. Right? But not only that, but there's the harmony with which creation interacted. There's, there's, there's no enmity between man and animal. They, they can coexist. That was coexistence between the liberals messed it all up. Before the liberals messed it all up. I just messed that up anyway. I'm going to continue on with what I got here in my notes, okay? Number three, there's the full unhindered presence of God. The full unhindered presence of God. God walked and he talked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Right? The, the full effect of his presence is clearly seen, it's clearly felt there in the Garden. Now, these are just a couple of the reasons why we can safely assume that the word paradise fits in the Garden of Eden, in a description of the Garden of Eden. And that's not even to mention a couple of the other things that I've thought of, like a clearly defined, unhindered purpose for man. He was to name the animals, care for the animals, right? The sheer beauty of God's creation in all of its untarnished state. The Garden of Eden was paradise, but it was paradise with a choice. It was paradise with a choice right in the middle of the garden. The Bible says right in the middle of the garden, there's two trees that are planted. There's the tree of life. The tree of life is one that gives eternal life. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, and this is Adam, after Adam and Eve have sinned. Um, here's what God says, okay? Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then we find God casting them out of the Garden of Eden. And he puts barriers up so they cannot re-enter the garden. 
All right, so there's the tree of life, but then there's also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the tree that God commanded them to not eat from. Now, why did God not allow them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he said nothing about the tree of life? Well, it's because they already had eternal life. Right? When, God, when God created them, they were already in this state of life eternal. Right? So there was no need in him saying anything about the tree of life because it's already theirs. It's already a blessing that he's bestowed on them. Right? They're pure, they're holy, they're sinless before him. But the command here was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God was clear, you do this and you will die. Pretty straightforward, right? You eat of this tree and you will die. Adam and Eve had paradise, but they also had a choice. You see, God doesn't create robots that simply do only what they've been programmed to do, ever. A part of being created in the image of God means that we have a will. We have a choice. Mankind can decide whether they're going to follow God, do what God says, or they're going to follow, they're going to pursue themselves. And we know what Adam and Eve chose to do, right? Right there in the Garden of Eden, God choose to, or Adam and Eve choose to pursue themselves. And right away, immediately, something drastic starts to take place. There's this process of decay that begins. They start dying. But not only they start dying, the earth itself begins to die. John Gill was an English Baptist pastor who lived back during the 1700s. And, and when he was writing one time about the sin of Adam, here's what he had to say. By sinning, he was, dis, he was debarred. His natural life, not now to be continued long, at least not forever. He was immediately arraigned, tried, and condemned to death. Was found guilty of it and became obnoxious to it. And death at once began to work in him. Sin sowed the seeds of it in his body. And a train of miseries, afflictions, and diseases began to appear, which at length issued in death. Moreover, a spiritual and moral death immediately ensued. He lost his original righteousness in which he was created. The image of God in him was deformed. The powers and faculties of his soul were corrupted, and he became dead in sins and trespasses. The consequence of which, had it not been for the interposition of a surety and savior, who engaged to make satisfaction to law and justice, must have been eternal death, or an everlasting separation from God, to him and all his posterity. For the wages of sin is death, even death eternal. Ladies and gentlemen, sin is a very, very serious thing. It is a very serious thing. Sin is anything that goes against what God has said, and it's anything that directly opposes God. And with this decision that Adam and Eve made to pursue themselves over the word and the will of God, sin enters into the world for the first time. Sin enters into the world. That's what we find in Genesis chapter 3. We just read part of Genesis chapter 2. If you were to look in Genesis chapter 3, you see that entrance into sin. We're going to get there here in just a moment. Now, folks, listen, I hate, absolutely hate that this is a part of God's story. Because it's not how God created it to be. But the reality is it is a part of God's story. And because it's a part of God's story, now it's a part of our story because it was all handed down from Adam. Folks, you cannot turn anywhere in your Bible without seeing sin. 
of some kind, either, either the pull of sin, the effect of sin, the truth of sin. You can't turn anywhere until you see, except to see those things. And, and really, that's what I want to talk about the rest of our time together. I want to talk about the pull of sin, the effect of sin, and the truth of sin. So start here with the pull of sin, okay? Read Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Folks, in this we learn a whole lot about the way that Satan works. The way that he entices the way that he, he pulls us in with temptation to sin. There's a, there's a hint of truth in what Satan's talking about here, right? Did God actually say, you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, all God said was you shouldn't eat of this one tree. Oh, but he's just kind of enticing out there. Did God actually say, continues, uh, God said, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But then the serpent gives her something. He gives her an outright lie. You shall not surely die. Folks, God, or Satan, works in ways that, were, that are detrimental to the believer, to anyone. Pulls us into sin. Folks, all it took for Eve to eat of this was Satan just doing a little bit, just a little bit to entice them. And then what happens? It's not just Eve that eats of the fruit. It's Adam and Eve both eat of it. Folks, that initial pull of sin, just like in this story, is often small. It seems like it's harmless. The Bible even says that oftentimes there's a way that seems right to a man, right? But in the end, it leads to destruction, Satan is an evil, conniving monster. Nothing short of that. He does whatever he can to distract you and to tear you down. And the way that he works on me is probably different from the way that he works on you. Charles Spurgeon, years ago, back in 1958, he's preaching about the ways that Satan determines how he's going to tempt a person. And here's what he said. He said, there's a man, okay, he's describing one man here. There's a man who is calm and quiet and at ease. Satan does not attack that man with unbelief or distrustfulness. He attacks him in a more vulnerable point than that. Self-love, self-confidence, worldliness. These will be the weapons which Satan will use against him. Okay, what about another person? Here's another one. There's another person who is noted for lowness of spirits. It is not possible and want of mental vigor. It is not probable that Satan will endeavor to puff him up with pride. But examining him and discovering where his weak point is, he will tempt him to doubt his calling and endeavor to drive him to despair. There's another man of strong, robust bodily health, having all of his mental powers in full and vigorous exercise. 
enjoying the promises and delighting in the ways of God. Possibly Satan will not attack him with unbelief because he feels that his armor, that he has armor for that particular point, but he will attack him with pride or with some temptation to lust. He will most thoroughly and carefully examine us. And if he shall find us to be like Achilles, vulnerable nowhere else but in our heel, then he will shoot his arrows at our heel. Satan fights dirty. He sure did with Adam and Eve right there in the Garden of Eden. And there's a good chance that you've seen the ways that he fights dirty with you. You know that it's at your weakest point that Satan starts throwing lies at you. You know it's at your weakest point that he starts tempting you with this or that. You know that's how he works. There have been times that I've told guys that I'm accountable to. I tell them I'm doing, a, I'm doing really well in a certain area, right, that they ask me about. And it's not hours later. It's not hours later. It's like Satan hears it. It's not hours later. I'm struggling in whatever it was that I just told him. I'm doing great in this. Folks, never ever should we take lightly the pull of sin. It looks beautiful. It looks enticing. It oftentimes looks like it's good for us, but in the end, it's going to lead nowhere except to destruction. Now, you might be wondering, sitting there right now, how do I fight the pull of sin? How can I be successful in this? Before anything else, let me say this. You have got to understand the depth at which sin can take you. You have got to understand the depth at which sin can take you. And in this, we see the effect of sin. We look at the effect of sin. Folks, in the case of Adam and Eve, we find in chapters 2 and 3 and really beyond here in Genesis that their lives are forever changed as a result of their sin. That one decision... That one decision took them further than they ever wanted to go. Creation itself, the earth, was changed as a result of sin. Okay? Not only man was changed, but the earth itself began, began decaying. Sin, the effect of it, is far-reaching. This Tuesday, it will have been 45 years since the United States Supreme Court made a decision that would drastically alter the future of the United States with the decision of Roe versus Wade. Now, God's word is very clear that humans are made in his image. Therefore, each person has intrinsic value simply because of the way that they are created by God. Abortion and the legalization of it is at its core sin. And there are very few things in this world that show us the effect of sin the way that abortion does. I want you to listen to this, okay? Since 1969, it is estimated that around 50 million babies have been aborted. 50 million. That's 50 million individual people who were never given the opportunity to carry out the plan that God had for their lives. Folks, that's 50 million people that prove that the effect of sin has far-reaching consequences. Now, let me say this, um, while I'm on this topic of abortion, if abortion is a part of your past, then the good news is that God offers the very same grace to you as he offers to anyone else who has sinned. There's no difference whatsoever. He offers the same grace to you as he does to anyone else. He offers the same forgiveness, opportunity at forgiveness to you as he does to anyone else. So I don't want to put abortion on some kind of pedestal that says, hey, that's a worse sin or anything like that, because sin is sin in God's eyes. 
Grace is grace in God's eyes. Mercy is mercy in God's eyes. But I share this example as to really to explain the effect of sin. But that's really just one sin, okay? If I had a ton more time and I'd tell you about how one lie can translate into many more lies that end up with nasty consequences. I can tell you about how one act of selfishness can forever alter the relationships that we've got with other people around us. One look that turns into a longer look at a pornographic image has the potential of wrecking your marriage or forever changing the way that you view members of the opposite sex. All it takes is for one little decision to lead to another decision that leads to another decision and eventually you found yourself in way over your head and you're wondering how in the world you got there and how you're ever going to get out. If we're ever going to be successful at fighting sin, the pull of sin, then we've got to understand the effect that sin can have on our lives. I'm going to give you a very practical example of what I'm talking about here and understanding the effect of sin. I think I told you some time ago um, that several years ago, I, write, I wrote down a list of the consequences if I was ever found to have been immoral in my personal life. And I got this idea from Randy Alcorn, his book, The Purity Principle. But here's a part of that list. Not the full list, here's part of it. I would bring great dishonor to God because I defiled him. If I was ever called to be immoral, then the name of Jesus would be greatly harmed in the minds of people who are already skeptical of him. My marriage to Hillary would be devoid of trust and respect and would most likely be completely ruined. I have four boys who may not know what their dad did, but they would know that there's an absence of me being able to fulfill what God has called me to do. My parents would be shattered and shamed. My extended family would be devastated, many of them after praying for my personal holiness for many, many years. I would bring great shame to Salem Baptist Church and to the universal church as a whole. I would be following in the footsteps of many men whom I have admired in the past who have fallen in the same way. My vocational calling would be forever changed. Maybe not over, but it would be changed. Folks, we've got to understand the effect that our sin carries with it. We've got to come to grips with the damage that can be done and the little decisions that we make. An understanding of the effect of sin and how deep it can take you is the exact key to fighting against the pull of sin. A.W. Tozer, in writing one time about sin, he said, A man by his sin may waste himself, which is to waste that which on earth is most like God. This is man's greatest tragedy and God's heaviest grief. Folks, we are the, 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 the one thing on earth which is most like God, created in the image of God, and we will be wasted we're caught in sin. And I would argue not just when we're caught in sin, but when we sin in general. Because even though other people may not know about our sin, there is a God who does know. Folks, if ever there was a reason to not be wasted by sin, it is that fact that we are created in God's image and we are created with a purpose. When we sin, we diminish what God is allowed to do in our lives. But there's something else that you've got to have. You have got to have this in order to fight sin. You must have not only an understanding of the effect of sin, but an understanding of the truth of sin. The truth of sin. Where's the best place to go when you're trying to find out about the real story of sin? What is sin really like? What do we need to know about sin? Where do you go to find that? We go to God's Word. Go to God's Word to find that. Romans chapter 
5, verse 12, and beginning this idea of what does the Bible have to say about sin, here's what it says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That verse tells us that we are all sinners because of the sin of the first man of Adam. Okay? It was through Adam that sin entered into the world. Therefore, no one is immune from the act and the effect of sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 begins, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Talking about God's sight. In other words, there is no action that you can complete that's going to save you. There is no level of obedience and adherence to the, to the law and the word of God that will allow the sin to be removed. It continues to say, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Folks, the law of God, the word of God is there for the purpose of pointing out that we are sinners. There is no way that we as humans can fully obey everything that God has commanded. And even if we could obey it all, there is something else that is absolutely needed in order for the sin to be dealt with. The law helps us understand without a doubt that we can do nothing to save ourselves. The curse and the hold of sin is too much for us to handle. In Ephesians chapter 2, we find that we are spiritually dead in our sin. I've told you before that that doesn't mean that Jesus comes along um, and he pulls us out of the lifeboat in the middle of the ocean. No, Jesus is in the lifeboat and he reaches over the side of the lifeboat into our lifeless bodies that are face down in the water, no breath whatsoever inside of us. He pulls us up into the lifeboat with him and he breathes life into our dead, lifeless bodies. That's exactly what it means for Jesus to give us life. Not only were we born dead, according to Ephesians chapter 2, we continue reading Ephesians chapter 2, that we are born with a propensity to pursue after Satan, to follow Satan. Now, that doesn't mean that we actively worship Satan, like maybe many that you may hear of, Satan worshipers, but it's in essence the same thing because we are pursuing Satan. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, reinforces that the hold of sin pertains to all people, right? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one person. We understand from Colossians chapter 3 that on account of our sin, the wrath of God is coming on those who are found by him to have not had their sin dealt with. The wrath of God is coming on that person. So now we must ask ourselves this. If we can't do anything about our sin and our subsequent spiritual death, what can be done about it? If we can't do anything about it, what can be done? One of my favorite passages of Scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where there at the very end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul mocks sin and death. Here's what he says. Death, where's your victory? Death, where is your sting? And then he continues in verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the what? Come on, tell me. The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has given victory over sin and death through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Folks, the victory over sin has been won. What started in Genesis chapter 3 with great defeat and the coming of sin on this earth ends with the victory that Jesus gives through the death and resurrection. Last week we sang the song Victory in Jesus, in which we sang these words. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Come on. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. 
He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is to him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the curse of sin does not have to hold you any longer. A perfect, sinless, redemption-seeking, chain-breaking, sin-crushing Savior has paid the price you deserve to pay for the sin that's been handed down to you from Adam and Eve. So how do we embrace what Jesus has done? How do we live in the victory that is given to us by him? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's it. Confess your sin to him. Ask for, ask for repentance. And the promise is clear. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. In fact, he's not only going to forgive you, he's going to take his righteousness, he's going to put it on your account so you don't ever have to worry about being separated from God anymore. Because once you are in the Father's hand, you cannot be pulled out. Folks, the story of God is one that includes great sorrow in man's separation from him because of their sin. But it also includes great victory and joy because the relationship is repaired through the Son of God, through Jesus. In closing this morning, I want to leave you with a statement and then a short story. Okay, here's the statement. God knows all there is to know about you, yet he still loves you. He always has and he always will. I don't know what you bring into this room with you this morning. I don't know what sin is plaguing you over and over and over again. So it feels like you can't get rid of it. You think God doesn't love me because I am involved in this sin. Can I tell you, that's just not right. God loves you. He always has. He always will. And a part of the plan of God from the creation of the world and the entrance of sin into the world was to send Jesus to die in our place. Little boy and his father were driving down a country road. It's a beautiful spring afternoon. Suddenly out of nowhere, a honeybee flies in the, in the car window. And since the little boy is deathly allergic to bee stings, he becomes petrified, screaming, trying to get away from the bee. His father quickly reached out, grabbed the bee, squeezed it in his hand, and then released it. But as soon as he let it go, the young son became frantic again once it buzzed by the little boy once again. The father sensed his son's terror and reaching out his hand so his boy could see. He points to it and there stuck in his skin was the stinger of the bee. You see this? He asked. You don't need to be afraid anymore. I've taken the sting for you. Folks, the Christian does not need to be afraid of sin and death because Jesus has taken the sting out of death and sin. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?
If there has never been a time in your life in which you came to grips with the hold, the curse that sin has on you, then today is the day for you to do so. We were all born sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. But God, and the great love with which he loved us, when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've never confessed that you are a sinner before God, if you've never repented of your sin, then right now do so. If you were here this morning and you have done that in the past, but there is sin that is plaguing you. Yes, you have surrendered your life to Jesus, you've repented of your sin, but for one reason or another, you just can't get rid of a certain sin. You struggle with it, you fight with it. I want to remind you this morning that sin is nothing to be trifled with. It's time for you to start flirting with it and deal with it. There's a couple of ways I want to challenge you to deal with it. One is tell somebody about it. Tell somebody. Ask them for help. Would you walk with me through this? Secondly, you're going to need strength that is not your own. You're going to need the Spirit of God. So ask Him to help you. And then dive into His Word in ways that you haven't ever before. Pour yourself into it. If you need help beyond that, and you think, you know, I might need professional help. Someone a counselor, or someone who can walk with me through this. Come see me. Tell me about it. And if I can't help you or one of the pastors can't help you, then we will walk with you through this and finding someone who can. We'll pray for you, lift you up. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a great God. But that great God, his expectation is sinlessness. And though we can't be perfect, there are things that we can do about our sin, especially habitual sin. I want to challenge you this morning, don't trifle with sin. Deal with it. Get help in dealing with it. Our Father, I come to you in this moment, and God, I can't help but think that today, is going to be a defining day in some people's lives in which they take the next step in either repenting of their sin for the first time or dealing with the sin that has such a hold on them. Oh God, would you make us a church, individuals within a church, 
who seek your face first. That we don't gratify the, the flesh. That we don't do the things that go against you. That defy you. Oh God, make us pure and holy before you. Father, thank you for Jesus who gives us the victory. And Father, now may we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.